My name is Emmanuel Kuropati. Uh, I have been attending Spring Meadows for a little over two years. And uh, we are in a two-part study of a segment of the life. Uh, last week, we had uh, covered the first two confrontations that Elijah had with the wicked king Ahab. And uh, before we look at the, uh, uh, the text, let us... Can you hear me? Okay. So let's, uh, let's go to the Lord and uh, seek his help. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for uh, this time. I thank you for your word. Uh, for this opportunity to so study your word together. I pray that you would uh, uh, help us, Lord. Uh, help me to teach. Help us to learn uh, what you have in store for us, that we would be hearers of your word and doers, uh, applying your truth to our lives in the coming days. And I thank you for what you will do. In Jesus' holy name, amen. So we will be looking at... 1 Kings chapter 18, that'll be our primary text, uh, as well as other passages to, uh, to add depth to our study. Uh, before we look at the text, uh, let's get a broad overview of the story. Uh, around 875 BC, Ahab ascends to the throne of the northern kingdom of Israel as its seventh king. He is a wicked man, he is an evil king, and he marries uh, Jezebel, the daughter of King Ethbal of Sidon. Uh, Sidon is a neighboring kingdom to Israel, and at that time, it was the center of Baal worship. And uh, Ahab leads the nation of Israel astray towards the idolatrous worship of Baal. Uh, God does not leave his people without witness, and chief his chief witness is the prophet Elijah, and he comes on the scene without any fanfare, and he renders God's judgment uh, of drought, a covenant curse uh, on Ahab and the children of Israel for their idolatry. Uh, the drought is severe. It lasts three and a half years, and toward the end of that period, uh, God gives word to his prophet to go back to King Ahab this time with good news that the drought would be coming to an end. But before that takes place, there is to be a showdown between uh, the prophet Elijah and the 400 prophets of Baal to determine who the true God in Israel is. And that showdown is what we will be studying this morning. Uh, the, and before and after on that showdown, God vindicates himself in a profound way, leaving no room for doubt that he alone is God in Israel, and he mercifully sends rain on the people um, uh, as they repent of their sins. Uh, last week, we examined Elijah's two confrontations with King Ahab, the first where he rendered God's judgment of drought, and the second where he brings uh, God's word that the drought would be coming to, a, to an end, but they have to assemble for the showdown. So those events took place immediately before we now look at this showdown that is to take place on Mount Carmel. So last week from the uh, passages, uh, the, 
Elijah's confrontation with King Ahab, we learned two uh, theological truths. The first is that uh, sin has consequences, and God shows mercy in judgment. Ahab and the children of Israel had turned from God and turned to Baal for worship, and they faced the consequences of their sins. Drought fell on the land, a covenant curse, judgment from God. Yet even in that judgment, God had not abandoned his people. He had still a righteous remnant which he had preserved, and Elijah was God's spokesman uh, who brought God's word to the people, and also he was one who prayed for the people. He prayed that the people would repent of their sins and return to him. And he, the judgment itself was mercy in that God was, was seeking the repentance of the people even as he rendered this judgment on them. So all of that is a background uh, and a recap of what we studied last week. So with that in mind, let us turn to 1 Kings chapter 18. We will begin with verse 19. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 19. Here Elijah is uh, speaking to King Ahab. He says, now therefore, Send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Now I do have a handout uh, that we will be using. There are uh, four points that we will examine this morning from the passages before us. The first is the folly of idolatry. The second is Elijah's offering of prayer to the Lord. The third is God's response to Elijah's prayer. And the fourth is Elijah's prayer for rain. And we will end uh, our time with some application uh, from what we have learned. So our first point is the folly of idolatry. Here, Elijah makes a clear choice to the people. Now, got to understand the, uh, the, 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 the situation of the context that Elijah is finding himself in. Uh, there is a large gathering of people on Mount Carmel. You have Ahab, the king's court. Uh, you have the leaders of the nation. And, and uh, the nation of Israel, thousands of people are gathered together on Mount Carmel, and Elijah uh, gives a clear choice to the people. He says, if Yahweh is God, then serve him, or if Baal is God, then serve him. And the people uh, have no response. We're, we're told the people did not answer him a word. And this is remarkable. Uh, the, the nation is suffering for, from a three-and-a-half year of drought. Uh, Baal, whom they had turned to to bring the rainstorms that they needed for fertility of the land, uh, had, not, uh, uh, had not given them the rain that they had needed. Instead of rain, they got drought. And yet the people are unwilling, unwilling to see the folly of their their decision, the folly of their uh, uh, choice to worship Baal instead of Yahweh. 
we see here the hardness of their heart and the folly of idolatry, such as the depth of human depravity. So Elijah then, he, uh, he sets the stage for the showdown. So what Elijah says, let's look again at uh, our passage. Again in 1 Kings chapter 18, starting in verse 23. Elijah says to the uh, prophets, let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull, from, one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood but put no fire to it, and I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. So Elijah asked the prophets to choose for themselves a bull, and they prepared that first bull, and they cry out to the Lord, we're told in the text, a total of six hours. Now, you, you have to give these prophets some credit. They cry out for six hours, yet there is silence. There is uh, no answer, no fire from heaven. They, they exhibit great zeal. They are zealous for for continuing to do, the, uh, do this for this extended, of, uh, extended period of time, yet they have no knowledge. They have zeal without knowledge. King Solomon says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Uh, and how could these prophets have true, no how could these prophets have true knowledge apart from Yahweh? And we, we see that Elijah begins to mock them. He says, uh, let's look, look at what he says in uh, verse 27. It says, cry loud, for he is a God. Either he is musing or is reveal, relieving himself. He is on a journey or perhaps he, he is asleep and must be awakened. So Elijah is a no-nonsense man. He calls sin what it is, and he calls uh, idolatry for the folly that it is, lest we be uh, quick to judge him, saying, now, Elijah is not speaking the truth, quote-unquote, the truth in love. Let us uh, see, uh, let us hear what Elijah's God thinks of idols. Turn your Bibles with me to Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 5. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 5. This is what uh, Yahweh has to say about idols. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. Also in Isaiah 44, verses 9 through 20, and you can read this on your own, there Yahweh uh, speaks of idols as uh, as being nothing, as being lifeless, and he calls those who are wor who worship idols to be put to shame. Uh, and this is remarkable what happens here, uh, because Elijah gives the gives the people, uh, rather the prophets of Baal, a platform. He ha they have a clear audience uh, uh, to pretty much the 
prove their own folly. They prove the folly of their own idolatry. Uh, they debunk the myth uh, that Baal is the storm god, and they prove him to be the worthless idol that he is, and also prove themselves to be the false prophets that they are. So such is the folly of idolatry. Now let's uh, look at our second point, which is Elijah's prayer. So we see in, uh, in our passage, again going back to 1 Kings, so Elijah says in verse 30, then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me, and all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down, and Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And Elijah also uh, pours water. We're told four jars of water three times over where the bull and the offering are soaking wet. Now the 12 stones that Elijah uh, uses to build his altar and the 12 jars of water that is poured out on the, uh, on the offering represent or symbolize the 12 tribes of Judah and Israel. Here Elijah was seeking the unity of faith in Yahweh and repentance, repentance from idolatry among the people of both the southern and the northern kingdoms of Judah and Israel. Uh, going back to the time of Solomon about 60 years ago, it was idolatry, Solomon's idolatrous practices that had rendered God's judgment on the unified kingdom of Israel. And it, in, in judgment on the nation, the, the unified kingdom of Israel had been divided into the two southern tribes, uh, two tribes of the southern kingdom and the ten tribes of the northern kingdom. Also, we see that Elijah timed this offering, we're told, uh, at the offering of the oblation, the timing of the offering of the oblation. Around this time, the, the godly Jews in the southern kingdom were, do, were offering their prayers at the temple in Jerusalem. So Elijah strategically uh, times his offering uh, to coincide with these evening prayers that are going, ongoing at the temple in Jerusalem. So we must ask ourselves, why does Elijah soak the offering with so much of water? See that the bull and the wood are soaked with water, enormous amount of water. It would have been counterintuitive it would have been humanly impossible to light up such an offering that is soaking wet. We see that, we will see later on in his prayer that he prays to God that Elijah was, uh, was obeying God's commands to do so. God was testing Elijah's faith and he was teaching a lesson to the, uh, to the nation of Israel that he alone could do what was humanly impossible. We're told, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. 
But before we examine Elijah's prayer itself, and it's a beautiful prayer, we're going to get to that, let's assess the situation in which Elijah finds himself. Uh, he is outnumbered 450 to 1. Uh, the, the place where they are assembled on Mount Carmel borders the region, which, which is the center for Baal worship. Uh, and Baal is the storm god. It is his specialty to produce thunderstorms and to provide the rainstorms for the fertility of the land. So they, he's outnumbered. Uh, the Baal, the prophets of Baal have the home field. And uh, it seemed from a human perspective, the prophets had the upper hand. Yet God, yet Elijah has great faith in Yahweh. He is a man of prayer. He has been praying throughout his ministry for the people of the land. James tells us that he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and God honored his prayer and brought judgment on the land. Now he understood, Elijah understood, that without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever, draw, who, whoever would draw near to God was, must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So Elijah confidently and publicly prayed. Let's read that together in uh, our passage, 1 Kings 18. We'll be looking at verse 36. And at that time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. There are three things that uh, I want us to learn in, about Elijah's prayer. The first thing is its brevity. It is a short prayer, maybe less than a minute. It's brief compared to the, uh, the six-hour length of time that was spent by the prophets of Baal. And I'm going to hold this here. Is this better? Okay, good. Uh, so in comparison, it's, it's a brief, it's a short prayer. So prayer, it, it teaches us that prayer is a matter of the heart, is the sincerity of one's heart. And uh, it's not so much Prayer is not so much measured by the amount of words or the length of time that is spent in prayer. The second thing that we learn about prayer is its focus, what Elijah's focus is. His focus is on God. He first addresses God as the God of the forefathers of the nation. Uh, it is with these forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that God had made his covenant that he would make of them a great nation. And Elijah underscores that these people had abandoned the God of their forefathers in turning to the Baals. Uh, and also Elijah is Davidic in his prayer. Uh, David in his last uh, public appearance before the nation of Israel as their king, uh, he prayed for the people. And a, a part of this prayer David says, uh, prayed this, 
O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. So Elijah prays that God will be known again as the only God in Israel. So after focusing on God, Elijah shifts his focus towards the people of Israel in prayer. Elijah prays that God would show these people that he was God's servant, that he is God's true prophet, and that all of these things that he had done, he had done in accordance with God's word. And Elijah also prays that God would grant his people the true knowledge of him, that the people would know that you, O Lord, are God. And the third thing Elijah prays for the people is that God would turn their hearts back to him. He says that you have turned their hearts back. You see, Yahweh, in the midst of the idolatrous practices of, of the people, he was commanding the people to repent of their sins and to return to him. And Elijah is praying to Yahweh that God would grant them a heart of repentance, that God would grant them the repentance that they were incapable of doing themselves. The third thing that we observe about Elijah's prayer is, is, is its omission, what Elijah does not pray for. He does not ask for rain in this prayer, and this is what the people badly needed. And this is what the Lord had commanded uh, Elijah before he appeared uh, uh, before King Ahab, that he would, he would give rain. He had promised rain. Uh, so Elijah also does not pray for the fire. He does not ask that God would have the fire come down and consume the, the offering. Elijah's concern, his first concern, is God himself. He is concerned for the glory of God. He is concerned for the worship among his people. More than anything else, Elijah is asking that God would vindicate himself among a nation of idolaters. So how does God respond? Let's look at our third point, which is God's response. And we see that in verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. So God shows up. God vindicates himself in a dramatic way, leaving no doubt that he alone is God. But God does not stop there. God vindicates not only himself, but God vindicates his prophet, who had done all these things in obedience to his word. And God also vindicates the righteous remnant who had been suffering at the hand of the wicked king of uh, the wicked king Ahab. So what a day of rejoicing it must have been for, for these people, the righteous remnant, to see fire come down from heaven in response to the prayer of Elijah. I'd like for us to take a look at uh, two things about the offering itself. Uh, well, the first thing is how God responds through fire. There's something significant about the fire that comes down from heaven and consumes the offering that Elijah makes to Yahweh. Uh, 
Note how the fire incinerated the bull and the stones to ashes, and it licked up, and it licked up the enormous amount of water that was on the offering. So we must ask ourselves, what does the fire represent, and why the need to consume the stones and the water? See, God was illustrating for the people of Israel at that time and for us today, so he's showing something profound about his character by the fire that he had rained down from heaven. God, uh, uh, this fire represents the holy jealousy, the hot jealousy and fury of wrath that God has for his name and for his glory. We read in Deuteronomy 4.24, Moses tells us that God is a consuming fire. He is a jealous God. And God says of himself in Isaiah, I, the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. So such was the righteous, white-hot anger of God towards the people of Israel who had exchanged him for futile idols, for lifeless idols. The second question I had was, why was the bull slaughtered and consumed? It wasn't the bull that disobeyed the Lord. It wasn't the bull that worshipped the Baal. It was the people who had done so. In Genesis, did not God rain down sulfur and fire from heaven and consume the people of Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah for their sins? Yes, the, the, the fire from heaven must have justly fallen on the idolatrous people and consumed and God would have been just, uh, fully justified in doing so, in raining the fire from heaven and, and killing the people who had been disobedient to him. Yet God relents from doing so because of his eternal covenant with their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. So prophet Elijah had offered this bull as a sin offering on behalf of the people. This was to atone for their sins. And God, in his mercy, fully accepted the offering. So before God would send rain in mercy from heaven, two things had to happen. Atonement for the sins of the people had to take place, and the holy wrath of God had to be satisfied. And that was the reason for this offering that Elijah had offered to Yahweh on behalf of the people. So how do the people respond after seeing this fire fall down from heaven? We read in uh, verse 39, And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. So the people who were silent a few hours ago when Elijah had given them a clear choice, if Yahweh is God, worship him, or if Baal is God, then worship him, are no longer silent. Uh, in fact, their repetition of the Lord is God, the Lord he is God, underscores the gravity or the uh, sincereness of their corporate confession. And then what happens after that? Let's read, uh, continue on in verse 40. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape, and they seized them 
and brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them uh, and slaughtered them there. So in answer to Elijah's prayer, the the people open their eyes and they see Elijah as the true prophet of God and that Yahweh as the true God whom they ha- whom they should have been worshiping all along and they see the prophets of Baal as the false teachers as the false teachers and the con artists con artists that they have been so the people waste no time in seizing these false prophets and Elijah puts them to death in obedience to God's command that uh, false prophets and false teachers should be uh, put to death for, for leading the people astray. So our fourth point is that Elijah prays for rain. After uh, God ha- had answered the people and uh, ge- had answered Elijah and rained fire from heaven and the prophets are put to death, Elijah turns to Ahab and says, go on, write on, to your uh, to your palace for this is uh, for there is a rainstorm coming now there is no indication in this narrative of any repentance on the part of Ahab and if as we know the rest of the story there really is no repentance on his part as he continues down the path of idolatry and his wicked leadership of the nation then we read that Elijah returns to Mount Carmel and then he prays to God for rain in verse, uh, verse 42, so Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and look, looked and said, there is nothing. And he said, go again seven times. So notice Elijah's posture as he prays before the Lord for rain. Humbles himself before the Lord. Uh, he is submitting to the Lord's will, to the Lord's command. And also we see that he sends, nothing happens the first time, and he sends his servant seven times. And this whole time, Elijah continues to pray. He is persevering in his prayer. Uh, James says, in James chapter uh, 5, we'll look at verse 17 and 18. Look at that quickly. uh, James says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain, Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. St. Augustine had said, Lord, command what you will, and give what you command. So it was God's will, after the period of three and a half years of drought, that rain uh, come for the people again on the land. And he had promised that he would bring rain. So what does Elijah do? He turns to the Lord humbly. And uh, perseveringly, he prays to the Lord, grant what you had willed, grant what you had promised for the people. And we see that at the seventh time, when he sends his servant a seventh time, the servant says, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand rising above the sea. 
and then rain comes. Rain comes and falls on the nation. Then Yahweh hears and honors the um, humble, persevering prayer of Elijah and mercifully rain on the land for his people. So in terms of application, as I was studying this, this, is a, this has been a familiar passage to most of us, and I must have read this passage uh, several times, but as I had studied this in more detail for the lessons, uh, I learned some invaluable truths and, and some points of application that I found applicable to myself. The first thing I saw was that when God vindicated his prophet Elijah and the righteous remnant on Mount Carmel, it was a foretaste of a far greater vindication that the Lord would have on another mountain, on Mount Golgotha, on Mount Carmel, for all of his elect. There, Jesus was the bull, the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world, and he atoned for all the sins of the elect. Now, it gives us great comfort because that's the basis in which God, a righteous God, can forgive our sins. He forgives our sins again and again and again because every time we sin and every time we confess our sins and look to him, he remembers his covenant. He remembers his son, Jesus, who died on Calvary, atoning for all of our sins, and that should give us great comfort. And I asked myself, so if God had fully vindicated me on Mount Cal Calvary, why do I still suffer the droughts in my life? You know what I'm talking about, the various trials and tribulations that we face in our lives, whatever forms they might be in your lives. The persecuted brethren came to mind, how they're persecuted and how they're suffering uh, great affliction under the uh, Ahabs and the Jezebels of their governments. You see, God is still sanctifying us. He is still ridding our hearts, ridding our lives of the bulls or the, or the bales in our lives and readying us for our heavenly Jerusalem. So w when you're faced with the droughts in your life, whatever they may be, take heart. We should take heart and know that rain is coming. Rain is coming. And there will be a day when Christ our King returns and fully vindicates his people and all the droughts in your life will be forever forgotten. So what, we should, what should we do in the meantime? We should continue to live our lives as Elijah lived it, prayerfully dependent upon the Lord and living out our lives in such a way, telling the unbelieving, the unbelieving world that Yahweh is my God. Yahweh is my God. So at this time, uh, we have a few minutes left, about nine minutes or so. I have some application questions that I had drafted, and I'd like, to, uh, I'd like your thoughts on that. Perhaps if you have any questions yourself or any comments to make, um, this is the time that we will, we will do that. Uh, the first question I had was, why do you think the children of Israel remained silent when Elijah gave them a choice between Yahweh and Baal? Yes. I believe so. 
I think they had still hardened their hearts. That was what the comment was, that their hearts were still hard. I also thought that the people were probably afraid. You know, they were uh, afraid of facing the wrath of, of Ahab, of Jezebel. There was already a purge that had been ongoing where the righteous prophets had already been put to death. And uh, quite frankly, I, I would be afraid too. Well, it says, it says that uh, 7,000 people did not bow to Baal. Um, I, I've, I've heard different theories. I don't know if they're true or accepted or not, but that demonic activity, particularly before the time of Christ, made these idols capable of doing all sorts of things. Um, so I don't know, you, you know where that fits in. But it seems to me, as, as a Calvinist, many of these people didn't really belong to God. They were Jews, but they were what we would call goats. You know, they, so I, I don't know, um, you know, if, if, that's, if that's a helpful comment or not. But um, just because these people changed and shaped up, I would submit doesn't necessarily mean that they were now God's chosen people by, by the numbers. So I, I don't know if that's of any use to anybody, but yeah. it's just an observation, so thank you. Thanks for listening. Sure. Uh, you, you bring up a good point, uh, Ralph, right? <laughs> I forgot your name for a minute. Uh, you know, part of the, the worship practice of Baal was uh, called prostitution, and there was also child sacrifices that were involved, so there was certainly demonic activity that was ongoing as part of their worship, uh, things that clearly violated God's command and his, uh, uh, his value for life, uh, man being created in the image of God. Uh, good, good comments. The second question I had, and I have them on your, uh, on your handout that I had passed out, what are your thoughts on some of the temptations that we face in our church and our, from our culture today that would lead us away from the true worship of God? one of the biggest things is insidious and it's distraction that we are distracted from God we're called to the world that's a great point well we sorry go ahead Keon. Sorry, sorry. Um, something that I think um, yeah that can distract us in our culture is instead of worshiping an idol like a physical thing, a self-worship, an idol of the self, becoming so focused on what you've got going on and your problems that you forget that God is sovereign over everything, including the stuff you're holding on to and your struggles. So I think that's something that really takes us away from focusing on God, because if he was who we think he is, why do we worry, you know? I think it's really telling in verse 21 
Elijah says, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? We want to live in both worlds. Great point. You know, there's still that uh, uh, desire in, in their hearts, in the human heart, for a syncretistic worship. We, uh, we love our idols, and if we can get away with it, uh, we would love to keep our idols and, and worship God as well. We <laughs> like to eat, uh, uh, have our cake and eat it too, as the saying goes. Uh, but uh, God, of course, will have none of it. He won't give his glory to, to any other, uh, and rightly so. No one else deserves our worship, his, our worship of him, and, uh, and hence, you know, the judgment that falls on the people, and on us too, you know, we, we need to, this is a warning that we should heed for ourselves in our lives. Uh, it, is, it is because the people forgot uh, the commandments of the Lord, they were not practicing it themselves, they were not teaching it to the future generations to, to practice that. Uh, and that was the, the beginning of the slippery slope. Uh, they got away from God's word and got into the word of the world, uh, the word of the Baals and the false teachers. Um, great, great comments. One last question. Uh, we may have uh, addressed it to some extent. How do we guard ourselves from the idols and stay true to Yahweh? Good comment. The com comment was that God would help us in our unbelief. I always, uh, the lady said, I forget your name, Karen said that uh, you know, the struggle is there, that we have to continue to turn to the Lord in prayer. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We'll make that our last comment and we'll close in prayer. I remember in discussion of um, in the genesis of um, Noah and then later it's reflected on the New Testament that they were given in marriage and life was going on as if nothing was going to change. God is long-suffering but there does come to an end of his patience and that's what we need to remember that there will come a time when the heavens split open and the trumpet sounds. Um, we don't know when that'll be but it is not the it will not go on forever so God's judgment will come. Yes. It'll be judgment for the lost, unbelieving world, but it'll be a full vindication uh, of his people, his elect for whom Christ died. Uh, great comments, guys. Uh, let's go ahead and close and uh, prepare our hearts for worship. Almighty God, I thank you again for your word. I thank you for what you have taught us, what we have learned from your word. Lord, I thank you that you have vindicated yourself, that you have vindicated us, your elect on the cross. And every time we sin, we have uh, uh, the, the promise that you, return, that you remember your covenant, you remember your son who had atoned for our sins, that when we turn from our sins and return to you, that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from our unrighteousness. Lord, grant us the spirit uh, of faith and dependence on you like Elijah of old, that we would continue to live our lives in such a way that uh, proclaims to the, through the world unashamedly that Yahweh is my God. Uh, 
Uh, I pray that you'd go before us, uh, be with Pastor Tim as he brings your word to uh, bear on our hearts and minds and prepare our hearts uh, for our worship. In Christ's name I pray and ask these things. Amen.